welcome to the Classicist Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, here as always with Victor Davis Hanson, the Morton and Ely Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. And Victor, today, alas, we feature a topic that I never thought would intrude upon this show, but given the times in which we live, uh, it has this spate of sexual harassment and in some cases sexual assault allegations that we've seen pouring out of late. And this began, of course, with Harvey Weinstein, but it now extends to virtually every industry that has high public visibility. And I want to take as our point of departure here a recent piece that you wrote on this topic for National Review in which you posited that as people look for a theme that ties all of these disparate stories together, there's one factor that they're not giving serious enough consideration, and you say that is cruelty. Explain that. Well, what I meant was that there's an element in sexual congress on the male's part that and I mentioned in the animal kingdom, there's an element of brutality. And the role of civilization was to step in and say that sexual coupling under the aegis of marriage or steady relationships then tries to soften that male that male impulse. And that's what makes we can be very old-fashioned, call it chivalry, or we can call it courtship, or we can call it self-respect, or we can call it respect for women. But whatever it is, it's essential that a society has that. But when we saw these men who were uh, groping or sexually assaulting, they did things that were sort of relish or flip it to the to the exploitation in the sexual sense. And by that I mean, why did Al Franken have to sort of smirk when he grabbed the breast of a sleeping woman? Or why did Matt Lauer have to play a little game in addition to the sexual assault? He played a game, supposedly, it was reported, that he asked other males, um, would you like to shoot this woman? Would you like to marry her? Um, Etc. And a lot of the things that Harvey Weinstein said were absolutely uh, sort of humiliating, like almost as if I'm ugly and I'm fat, and yet you're forced to like me, haha, because I have power. And my point in that article was that's what happens when the deterrence of um, civilization wears away. And the natural impulses start to intrude. And one of the remedies for it, there's a lot of remedies for it. The law can be a remedy, the sexual harassment statutes, a shame culture that makes it embarrassing to be so uncouth. But one of the other ones that we've forgotten were that other males felt that they had a duty to protect women that were their sisters, their girlfriends, their wives, their daughters. And therefore, other males knew that. And so um, if it was my mother or my sister and she's in the workplace and somebody's acting like Matt Lauer, then in addition to all the other remedies that she has, one of the remedies would be Matt Lauer would be afraid that one of us would confront him. But that that very powerful deterrent has disappeared from society as, as I guess, 19th century or reactionary. So to be sure, this behavior does not break down along partisan lines. But there is an interesting trend in the cases where it happens on the political left. When Harvey Weinstein made his first pub public comments after the allegations against him, he went out of his way to highlight the sort of non sequitur that he was going to challenge or channel, excuse me, some of these energies uh, into fighting the NRA 
We just had Al Franken resigning from the Senate over these harassment allegations, but boasting at the same time that he had been a champion for women while he was serving in Congress. Uh, Victor, why do progressives seem to think that their political views are relevant when it comes to defending themselves against these well, kinds of charges? I don't want to be reductionist, but it does get back to this human characteristic of deterrence. And so once somebody feels that an overarching ideology um, can exempt them from uh, proper behavior, then they're liable to do whatever they feel that they wish to do without fear of punishment. And by that, I mean people on the liberal, on the liberal left, where it's Glenn Thrush or Mark Halpern or Matt Lauer or Garrison Keeler. And I'm not trying to condemn any of them because I don't know the facts in each case, but if they feel they have very strong feminist fides, then they would probably think people are going to be less likely to criticize me because my voice is in the abstract, at least strongly feminist and they wouldn't want to lose that where if you're a Roy Moore or Donald Trump then that type of behavior seems to be a window into their soul and confirms what you already naturally sus suspect of, of non-liberal people. Victor, there's a notion out there pretty well borne out by the polling data that Americans are undergoing a collapse in their faith in a lot of their social and political institutions. Now, obviously, if you're losing faith in Hollywood, that doesn't quite carry the same significance as losing faith in the federal government. But you could argue that this whole stream of stories is of a piece with the idea that our major institutions are suffering a kind of rot. But I suppose there are two ways to look at big scandals like this. The first is corrosive, that things are just falling apart. But the second, I suppose, slightly more optimistic version is that this is purgative, that we're sort of clearing out the underbrush and that something better is going to come from this. Which one of those is closer to your view? Well, I don't think anything, I guess, the, the former, I don't think anything is, it, it, we haven't resolved a lot. Of, we, ha we haven't had anything finite yet. We don't, have, we don't have a resolution yet because for two reasons, we're trying to um, impose a 1950s normality and respect and almost Victorianism to a, a pre-modern idea of, of, of civility to a post-modern society that is still running on the fumes of the 1960s. So, but by that, I mean that young people, to take one example, who may have dozens of sexual partners in a way that was not true of the 1930s or 40s or 20s before they marry, at the same time are told that now there's an intricate ritual uh, that defines whether their sexual con Congress is coerced or not in a way that was true maybe of the 20s and 30s. So we're trying to square a circle between promiscuity and Victorianism, and it's not working too well. And I think you can see that. And the second thing is we haven't established gradations yet of sexual harassment. And that sounds sort of, that might sound uncouth, but what I mean by that is, is what Harvey Weinstein did by raping somebody comparable to George H.W. Bush's grope of, a, of somebody. When George H.W. Bush was 90 and he was groping a woman from a wheelchair, is that the same as when he was 78 and groping somebody who was underage? Or when uh, uh, Al Franken is groping some person who's asleep and cannot 
wasn't is not aware of it is it the same as trying to kiss somebody and the, uh, a lot of feminists say no there's no difference but just to take one final example when Bill Clinton, I think likely, I think there's good evidence, likely sexually assaulted Juanita Broderick. That, I think, is different than having a consensual relationship with an of-age Monica Lewinsky, even though it might have violated workplace protocols that involve symmetry of power. But nevertheless, it's not as... And, and yet, we just... we One day we wake up and suddenly Ryan Lisa of the, of the New York times is gone and then we read larry king is gone and we've thrown out due process and we blurred all of these felonies and misdemeanors into one accusation that stands without without due process of whether it's accurate or not and that's what's the danger i think that the me too movement has become taken on a life of its own it's going to end up like the committee on uh, for public safety in revolutionary france or each iteration became more violent and more uh, revolutionary than the last. To that to that point, there's another passage in your piece that I'd like to get you to expand upon. You refer in there to these male icons. This is a quote: "Who are falling as fast as Confederate statues a few months ago in our earlier manifestation of collective moral frenzy." That phrase, "collective moral frenzy." jumps out. And, and I don't understand you there to be diminishing in the slightest the terrible things that have legitimately happened to women, but it does hit on a key feature of the current environment, which is the speed and sometimes the imprecision with which these things explode. And people who have worked in the entertainment industry, for example, will tell you that this kind of behavior has gone on for decades. Indeed, some of these allegations document that. And of course, those Confederate statues that you referenced, they were up for decades before there was this sudden impulse to topple every last one of them. To what do you attribute this instinct where all of a sudden these longstanding issues get turned into crusades where really no prisoners can be taken? Yeah, and that, and I think there's two things. One, it's inherent to democracy that just if you can have a pet rock fad where through mass advertising and the empowerment of large groups of people, they'll go out and buy a cabbage patch doll or a pet rock. And then a year later, they'll collectively have them in their garage or in their, they're in the landfills. So we're prone anyway to go to the hula hoop or yo-yo craze. But then that innate, and it's been documented in political scientists from Machiavelli to Aristotle, but that's a, that's a, a danger of, of democracy that has to be dealt with. But when you add the fuel of social media, that you have 6 billion people who in theory can be in instant communications, then the uh, window or the waiting time or the period for reflection and digestion of news is collapsing. So one day, I shouldn't say one day, Garrison Keillor is accused of groping a woman's back an hour or two later, he he makes a clumsy excuse or he doesn't really explain himself well. Three hours later, he's fired. Five hours later, his products are pulled from NPR um, catalogs. And seven or eight days later, probably his teaching kit in a school is going to be pulled. That's pretty rapid. And yet we've never really decided to what degree he's even guilty or we've never had a trial, especially when these are way beyond the statute of limitations. 
And we all look, the result of that is we all look at our own lives and say, 40 years ago, I'm 64, and I'm thinking, not necessarily in a sexual sense, but when I was 24, was did was I a kind to everybody in graduate school? Did I make jokes about a professor that I shouldn't have? Will that person come out of the woodwork now and make a post facto allegation? And then when you add into the, the mixture that What's going on is often predicated on perceived levels of celebrity so that we hear about them because not the, that the accuser, but usually the target is someone we, we have some recognition of. And so there's so many incentives that are going into this mixture and there's so much uncertainty and we don't have, as I said, any experience really with it in gradations that I think it's it's spiraling out of control and there's it's going to create a backlash let me have you close by going back to something that you mentioned at the top of our conversation which is this idea of the deterrence to this kind of behavior breaking down and you pointed out one of the possible reasons for that is the lack of a shame culture, which is, Victor, I mean, that passes as a radical thought these days because as you have pointed out many times, we live in this therapeutic culture that is really oriented towards self-actualization, one of the predicates of which is that shame is to be avoided at, at all costs. Make the case for us for the importance, the social utility of some sense of shame. Well, in the modern world, one of the restraints on behavior was changed from public shaming because we felt that it was pre-state or pre-modern or pre-enlightenment. That is that people sort of didn't talk to somebody or they whispered or their family name was in, was imperiled by promiscuity or gambling or alcoholism. And then the entire clan or tribe was ostracized. And that there's obviously that's, we associate that with being primitive. So we, we transferred that deterrence from shaming to private guilt. And by that, in the post-enlightenment, we feel that if you've done something wrong, you're not so much worried that other people are going to find out about and punish you career-wise or your name, but that you might not go to heaven or you might not, if you're a secular atheist, you might not consider yourself an enlightened person. And that restraint, unfortunately, I think is a far less effective one. I'm not asking that we go back to the Icelandic world of blood guilt and all that stuff, but it does seem that people act in a certain way in Hollywood, to take one example, where they don't feel that there's any shame in what they're doing. Certainly Harvey Weinstein's behavior was known to everybody. And the way he acted, the way he treated women, the way he talked, so was Bill Clinton's, maybe... And uh, so was Matt Lauer's, to take a third example. But nobody seemed to think that their loss of reputation, if it did occur, was much to worry about. Maybe they all felt guilty about what they were doing at times. Maybe they confessed their sins to their God, or maybe they felt that in discussions they were not the the Renaissance person they thought they should be. But it surely didn't have a, a, an effect of restrain, restraining their their odious behavior. All right. Thanks, as ever, to our listeners for tuning into the Classicist Podcast. If you haven't gotten that already, remember to pick up Victor's new book. It's called The Second World Wars, How the First Global Conflict Was Fought and Won. And if you enjoy the Classicist Podcast, please rate the show on iTunes. We'll be back soon with another episode. For Victor Davis Hanson, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening.
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.